All right, uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Uh, we're going to continue with the idea that we began with last week. Uh, the church in the last days, um, giving a slight adjustment to what Pastor Brett said. Uh, the uh, last days are culminated in the last day. That would be the end times. So we're not dealing with the end times. Uh, the last days will lead to the end times. So the last days, as we looked at last week, are the age from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. The former days were everything from the, um, the prophets and the priests and the kings and the, the, the nation of Israel before the incarnation. From the incarnation to the return of Christ, these are the last days, the last times. Everyone reading the letters of the New Testament, the, the, the church exists in this church age, the last days. And um, what we saw posed against one another, we'll see over the next few sections. The church in these last days posed against the wickedness and the folly of the world. And these are in stark contrast to one another, and Paul uses contrast often to uh, make points. Last week, what we looked at was uh, challenges within the church, the, the wickedness of false teachers and false ideas, uh, especially preying on, on women. So there's a, a, a challenge to women to be aware. We also put a challenge for men to be diligent and to be protective. And uh, we looked at the importance of protecting and disciplining within the church against these false ideas, these pictures of um, evil men creeping into homes, creeping into households, disrupting families. And so as we think about the importance of protecting doctrine within the church, a picture comes to mind. Men, we would not let some shady dude walk around in our house. We would not let some creepy guy start talking to our wives or our, our, our children. But how many times, because we don't want to have a difficult conversation, does creepy doctrine and shady teachers and influences come into our homes, come into our churches, um, watching or listening to false teachers because they uh, tickle our ears. We should see them just as someone who would come into our house and hurt our family. We, we should be diligent because in these last days, as we're going to see, these imposters, they're going to go from bad to worse. And so this passage urges Timothy what to remember in the last days. He gives Christians a realistic picture. We looked at last week that we're not to be too pessimistic and assume that, that God is powerless to all these things, but not too optimistic and uh, forget that we live in a wicked world. We do not expect heaven on earth. We are realistic. Christ will preserve his church and his people, but the devil and his forces rage on. And so this uh, contrast is between the Christian who stands firm on the rock as the waves beat and as the storm rage, the Christian is not moved. However, the world stands on sinking sand. And as the tide rises and the waves come, they get more agitated and more desperate. And they want to destroy everyone on the rock. So before we get into our text, like we did last week, uh, I want to turn to the Gospel of John. I think this is telling for when we think about the church in the last days, the church age. John, of all the gospel writers, deals the most with the final night of Jesus' ministry. The upper room. Jesus leaves plenty of wisdom for his disciples, but what he mentions is important. There's a theme going throughout all these conversations. From John 14 on, really John 13 as well. We had our corporate reading earlier from John 15, but I want to just look at one verse, John 15, 19, and we'll look at this reading again later. But what does Jesus want to leave his disciples with? What is it that is most important for them to know as he goes to the cross and leaves earth? John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
so Jesus tells the disciples so they're not surprised. Don't expect to go out and be loved by everyone. Look what they're doing to me. You're going to see in just a moment how the world treats me. They hated me. They will hate you. He also promises to give them the Holy Spirit. But he, he continues to give them a, a picture. The world will be opposed to you, but I know the end. Last week, we looked at chapter 16, verse 33. Turn probably one more page in your Bible. John 16, 33. Talking about everything that he's, he's, he's talked about. I must leave. I'm going to send my uh, spirit who's going to remind you and comfort you, and things are going to get difficult. But he says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, notice there's the contrast again, in me. This is why the church is so necessary in the last days, because it is a refuge from the storm. It is a place where we're reminded the peace we have in Christ and we have with one another. But in the world, you will have tribulation. He promises peace in him. It is guaranteed. It was sealed at his resurrection. But he also promises tribulation in the world. Ah, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Whatever you go through, whatever tribulation, whatever difficulties, do not forget, I have overcome the world. Just a few verses later, as Jesus is praying and talking to his heavenly Father, he brings up this dynamic again, and he prays specifically for his disciples, their ministry, and everyone who would be affected by their ministry. John 17, verse, verse 13. But now I am coming to you. Jesus is getting ready to go back to the bosom of the Father, to sit at the right hand of the throne where he's, where he's rightly ruling. And he says, I speak, and these things I speak in the world, that they, my disciples, may have joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus said all these things. He doesn't leave them unaware of their, their uh, time on earth. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is where we are in the last days. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I, conse I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, so you may ask at this point, if Jesus is going to the cross, and he knows that there's going to be trouble here, he knows it's better to be with the Father. Why does he leave the disciples here? Why is the church still here? He goes on. I do not ask for these only, not just the ones standing in front of me, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Why is the church still here? Because there are more lost sheep. Because there are some who through the ministry of the word will believe. As Paul says, we'll look at that later, that he endures for the sake of the elect. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may believe in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a temptation for us to think, Lord, come tomorrow. When will, when will we leave this wretched planet? Come, Lord Jesus, come. But if the disciples would have said that, we would have all perished. We are still here. Because the kingdom is being added soul by soul. The lost sheep are being brought back to the fold. The bride of Christ is not yet complete. And so his church is sanctified in the truth for the sake of the bride. And his prayer. The world is going to try to divide you, but my prayer for my people is that they be one. The union among brother and sister in Christ should be that of the union between father and son. And so, brothers and sisters, this is where we find ourselves. Jesus has left us. Not alone. He's left us with his spirit and with his word. He has sanctified us against the world. He has left the, the, the church as a refuge. But as Paul's going to tell us, just reiterating what Jesus already said, the world is going to try to creep in. The wickedness that hates the kingdom of God will attack it from the front. And if that doesn't work, 
They will masquerade around within the church, waiting for someone to devour. And so that is why these texts are necessary. So that's where we are. And let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 10 of 2 Timothy. Verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning for the wisdom of your word. We praise you for the words of our Savior that have not left us without instruction and not left us without hope. We praise you that your word is steadfast, that our feet are firmly planted on the rock of our salvation. Because everywhere we look, it seems like the waves and the storms of this world would want us to drown. But we know we are held in his mighty right hand. Lord, I just pray that your church will be emboldened and encouraged through the preaching of your word this morning. Both in this church and in every faithful pulpit across the globe. May the church militant Rejoice with the church triumphant that our Savior rules and reigns. Our Savior has overcome the world. Our Savior is returning. But he has left us as, as missionaries, as, as ambassadors to this gospel of reconciliation. There are some yet who will believe. May we be faithful and may we be aware of those who would so Seeds of a false gospel. Those imposters who would lead astray, who would take your word and distort it. Would we have discernment as your people? Lord, I just grant, I just ask that you grant us um, peace and comfort in you, protection against persecution. But if and when persecution comes, May we stand bold as brothers and sisters throughout the ages. May the name of Jesus Christ ever be on our lips. May the world see your grace and your mercy toward us. May they repent of their sins and turn to him and be saved. That all the angels in heaven and all the saints throughout the ages would rejoice that our God is a God who saves sinners. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we're going to see over the next few sections, there's these uh, transitions. We ended on kind of a low note last week, the Janus and Jambres, the men who opposed Moses who wouldn't last for very long. Verse 10 begins with a contrast. You, however, Paul set the stage. Here, Timothy, here's what you can expect in ministry. Now, I want to encourage you to be set apart. You, however, Timothy, are not like these false teachers. You, however, Timothy, you have followed my example. Continue in it. You, however, Timothy, are set apart. You are holy. You are unlike the world. This this contrast tool is a favorite of Paul's. We'll see it several times uh, in the next few verses. Next week, we're going to begin with a contrast as well. Today, we're going to end on a note of deception. But verse 14 Begins with, but as for you. In chapter 4, we're going to end on a note of people wanting teachers to suit their own passions. But Paul says again in verse 5, but as for you, be sober-minded. This is a helpful tool for the church. This is what we see out there, but as for you. This is what the world is doing, but you, however, are this. We are a set-apart people. This is what Paul is doing He's telling Timothy, don't forget you are a new creation in Christ. Don't forget, as Jesus prayed, you have been sanctified in truth. Don't get led away by error. 
So, being sanctified, you have followed. This has been the, the pattern of, of your life. This, work, this word in the Greek is fascinating because it's not like a typical word for go or, or follow. It gives a picture of following so close behind, following in such a way that you are stepping in their very footprints. And if you've ever, uh, who, whoever lived in, in snow, you ever try to walk in deep snow? What's the, what it, you don't want to be the first one who walks in deep snow. But when you walk behind someone who walks in deep snow, you step in their footprints, it makes it a lot easier. This is the idea. You have followed me so closely that I have shown you where to step and you have stepped the same places I have. As kids, we play follow the leader. It's a fun little game. We, we uh, find someone and they try to, to get to do something so that, so that um, we'll follow them, but then they, they, they try to trip us up. But it's funny, so many things we do as kids, we never stop doing. For the rest of our lives, we play follow the leader. We try to find someone who we want to be like, we want to emulate, and we do what they do. We say what they say. We wear what they wear. And we hitch our wagon to someone else's horse, and hopefully we'll lead us, they'll lead us in the right direction. We don't normally think that, that far. This is also true in the Christian life. We look for examples. And whoever you look to, whoever you, you follow, they're going to shape you. They're going to guide you. They're going to determine where you go poorly or it may go well. I think everyone in this, this room, Christian or not, but certainly Christians, we have been shaped by the relationships in our lives. If you've had good Christian examples, if you've had godly men and women who walked in a way that was worthy, the manner of Christ, you've been encouraged. You felt secure in the church. But if you've had poor examples, if you've had people who used their authority to manipulate you, to use you, to mold you into their image, who have... Um, slandered you or blasphemed or um, discouraged you, you carry that around with you. And you begin to pick up some of those habits. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy here. Timothy followed so closely that his imitation became reformation in his life. What he imitated in Paul formed him into the image of Christ. This is a perfect picture of what discipleship is. We imitate someone we, we, we follow someone who's worth following, who's worth imitating, and they, they point us to Christ, and we look more like Christ. And so the, the encouragement here is to stay the course, Timothy. You're going to need these because these list of virtues are worth imitating. This is also a pattern of something that Paul uses often. May bring to mind 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. He says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Here we go again. Even though there's affliction for these Christians in Thessalonica, they became imitators of Paul because he's an imitator of the Lord. And they received it with joy in the Holy Spirit. And then what happened with that? What does the, what is the, the, the church do after they imitate one faithful believer, one generation, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia? This is the pattern for Christian discipleship. You imitate faithful believers. You become a faithful believer. You become an example to other faithful believers. And the church grows and is blessed. And all of these are important. Again, this is when, when Paul gives a list, he's giving a representative list. This is not a, a, exhaustive. There's many other things we could put on this list, but it gives us a good picture. And it begins where it should. You have followed my teaching. There's a pattern in 1st and 2nd Timothy. 1st Timothy 4, verse 6, where Paul tells Timothy, If you have put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, and the good doctrine that you have followed. Same idea. Going down to verse 16, same chapter. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, 
for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. This, the foundation that you build in ministry begins with your doctrine. He says the same thing in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is where it begins with, for believers. Um, yeah, verse 14 as well. Uh, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's why we named the series what we, we named it. For the faith entrusted to endure. The good deposit, the teaching, who Christ is and what he's done, the faithful doctrines of the church, this is the good deposit. The Holy Spirit has been given to you. So you can hold on to this and entrust it to others. That's where we begin in chapter 2. This is where it begins for believers. This is why our vision statement begins with teach truth. It must. Because if you, if you build a house with a faulty foundation, everything else will fall apart. When you teach truth and teach it rightly, that good deposit that is in Christ Jesus, you will see Christ in the text. He will be exalted. And then the desire is that when Christ is held up, our affections, our love is stirred for the Lord. And then we can lead one another and be uh, examples to one another. So if you have practice, we've dealt with this before, but it's a good reminder. If you have practice without teaching, it's just moralism. You can do everything else on this list. Conduct, aim of life, faith, patience. You can be a good Christian, Muslim, uh, atheist with, with, with a smile on your face. And it's, you're a great moral person, but if you don't know Christ, it is all in vain. These, these good works are as filthy rags. But also, the Christian life is more than, than doctrine. All these things should agree with and line up with our doctrine, but that's not the end of it. I think there's an error on the other side, and probably most of us, especially those who have studied theology, we can err on that side. I can have all my, my, my doctrine right. But I can be a faithless, impatient jerk in every other area of my life. But as long as I check all the right theological boxes. Notice, he begins with a teaching, but everything else flows out of teaching. Our practice flows out of our doctrine. His, his conduct, Paul's demeanor, Paul's, how he carries him, himself. Paul doesn't have to put on a face in public and a face in private. This is who he is. He is above reproach with people inside of the church and outside of the church. His aim of life, he has spiritual ambition. And it's not to be a megachurch pastor. And it's not to get rich. And it's not for everyone to love him. Paul, was, Paul by his own expense, worked with his own two hands for all of ministry. His aim in life is the upward cause of Christ. His aim in life is that the, the word of God would go to all the Gentiles, would go out into the nations. That is worth imitating. His faith. Paul's confidence was in the Lord. Paul's belief in every step of the way. It's not my strength. It's not my ministry. It's not my power. My faith is in the Lord who works through me. And so in that, he has patience. We as Christians don't need to be in a hurry. Our God is on the throne. His timing is perfect. There's nothing outside of his, his reach. He's not surprised by our difficulties and our own limitations. We so often want to do things our way in our time. But the one who truly trusts the Lord, patience. I trust God. I trust his timing. I trust him to use my efforts for his glory. And whether I see it or not, I will praise him either way. This lifestyle, this life worth imitating of Paul is also one of love. Remember the problem with the false teachers from last week. Remember the problem with the world for, for, for last week. Verses 2 through 5. They were lovers of self. Lovers of money. They uh, not, they, they did not love good. They loved pleasure rather than, than God. What you love will determine who you are. Everything we do comes out of our affections. 
They love pleasure and they love self. That is their God. That is their, their mission in life. But because of the love of Christ, Paul loves the Lord, and Timothy loves the Lord. And because the Lord has loved him, and because he is, he is grateful for what God has done, he loves others. And this produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, endurance, continuing without wavering. Until the end of my race, I have a job to do. This is what the Lord has called me to. My eyes are on the finish line. My eyes are on my Savior who has gone before me. I can't wait to be united with him. But until I do, as long as I'm on this track, I'm not getting off the track. I'm not switching lanes. This is what I'm called to do. So as we read this, every one of us, if you're a Christian this morning, if you are a follower of Christ, these are all good things. These are all things that we should seek to grow in. Pastors especially, Paul speaking to Timothy here, my, wife, my life is worth imitating, is yours. Men, is your life in your home worth imitating? Is your wife and your children, can they follow your teaching and your conduct and your patience and your love? After going through these, we must ask ourselves, how closely am I following Christ? Do I seek to step in his very footsteps? Do I desire to have my life completely conformed to him? Or am I following him at a very safe distance in case anyone would associate the two of us? Does his word guide my every step? Do I look for those who live in a way that pleases him and walk alongside them? And ask them for help and pull them along. Who do I imitate and pattern my life after? In the adult version of follow the leader, who are you following? Because if we'd be surprised how many influences we have that have a cumulative effect on us, whether it be coworkers, whether it be celebrities or influencers or just people who you think are cool or doing what you want to do and you begin to pattern yourself after them. Do we look to Christ? Do we look to godly examples or do we, do we look to human examples? Do we fear man more than we fear God? Here's, one, here's something I want you to notice as we transition. These are all in the singular. My teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Because there is one way, there is one Lord. There is one acceptable teaching. There is one acceptable faith. There is true peace only comes from one source. But the difficulties are many. The difficulties are in the plural. There is one way, there is one truth, there is one life. But there are many wide ways. And they come from all sides. This is always the case. So when he transitions here, you, however, you followed all these, you're also going to follow my persecutions, plural, and my sufferings, plural. And he talks about persecutions and sufferings um, at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. So if you're not familiar, in Acts 13, Paul is making his way through the uh, Gentile world. He begins in in Antioch, goes into the uh, synagogue. Some people believe, but the Jews get upset. They uh, chase him off. They threaten to, to, to stone him. They go to Iconium. Same thing happens there. Then they go to Lystra, and they actually stone him. Those from Antioch follow him to Iconium, and those from Iconium follow him to Lystra so that they can stone him. They want to kill him. But I want you to see what happens in Acts 14. Because obviously they didn't kill him. As, as Rick said, he made it past 30. Chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. You don't ever half stone someone. The only reason you stone someone, you stand around them in a circle and you throw stones at them until they are dead. 
That's the whole goal. They stoned Paul and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So when Paul says, the Lord rescued me from all these situations, this is what he's talking about. Is Paul discouraged after being stoned? When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. I love that. Throw stones at, at, at my face. We're going to, got work to do here, but then I'm coming back. And what happens when he does that? He goes back, post-stoning, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, because people believed in each of these cities, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The same thing Jesus told us, the same thing Paul's telling us now. Many tribulations, I'm living proof, living proof. But you will enter the kingdom of God. Don't focus on the tribulation, focus on the, on the kingdom of God. And you, and, and you would think, if this was a human institution, they're throwing rocks at us, they want to kill us, life's going to be difficult, you would think that, you, that, that this church would be destroyed. If it was up to us, we would scatter at this point. But what happens? And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord and whom they had believed. The church grew. Not only did the church grew, grow, but you had faithful people who were saying, I will stand on the front line. I will get in this fight. So Paul uses two words here, persecution and suffering. Persecution is a word that means to pursue, harass, oppose someone for their religious views. This is an offensive posture against someone you disagree with. It could include physical suffering, but it, it doesn't always. Paul was persecuted in Antioch, persecuted in Iconium, and then suffered in Lystra. That's why he brings these, these two together. But he endured it all. Why? Chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's what Jesus prayed. You're here. Sanctify them because others will believe. Paul says I'll endure it all for them. Verse 12 of chapter 2. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. My treasure is not on earth. I'm not here. I'm not enduring these things that the world will like me. But the elect, those who God has chosen out of the world to reign with him forever, I'm enduring for, the, for their sake and for eternal riches. This is the whole purpose of the letter. Verse, chapter 4, verse 3. Last days, there's a, there's a time coming. People will not endure sound teaching. Verse 5. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry? Why do we suffer? Because we love our brothers and sisters. Why would, we why would Christians face tribulation? Why would they face persecution? Why would they face physical harm? Because I count your life more worthy than mine. Because Christ laid down his life for me. How could I not give up comfort or even my life for those who he's died for? And then there's the beautiful reminder at the second half of this verse. Yet from all, from them all, the Lord has rescued me. What a beautiful reminder of how God cares for his people. I was persecuted. I was stoned. And he could have added other things to the list. You know what's one detail that I didn't mention? Lystra is Timothy's hometown. Most scholars think that Timothy was, was there when Paul was, was stoned. Because if you're a young man and they drag someone out in the middle of the street and throw rocks at him, you think you're going to find out? Imagine being this young man and seeing the guy who was stoned for the gospel preaching the gospel the next day. How confident and bold would you be? And how could Paul do that? He knew that his Lord would rescue him. This sounds just like Psalm 34. We could go to many psalms, there's many uh, psalms that are, remind us of the Lord's rescuing, but I think this is a beautiful picture of what's going on here. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, 
There's a, there's a theme here. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Praise God. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. But notice the, notice the contrast here. This is the ultimate rescuing. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That is the greatest deliverance. That you are rescued from condemnation. This is what Paul is saying. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I know my Lord will. He can and he will deliver me. But even if he doesn't, my Lord loves me. He will he will rescue me in the last day. This is the uh, gospel promise. That our Lord will rescue us even if they hate us or kill us in this age. The last days, there is an age to come that they cannot take from us. That we are sealed in him. Because Christ has taken our condemnation, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know what it means to be rescued. And the Lord will rescue his people in this earth. Not every time. But we've already been rescued in Christ from the greatest condemnation. That is why the cross is so important to us. And so when we think about this, Getting into this next verse, before we get to the next verse in 2 Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I want you to remember, do you remember who your rescuer is? Do you remember who is ultimately in control? Do you remember whose hand holds you? I love the picture of God as a shepherd in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, uh, 22 through, through, through 24. The picture of sheep is all throughout the scriptures. Uh, why? Because sheep are dumb, weak creatures who get themselves into trouble often. Don't know why the Lord chose that for humans. I'm still trying to figure that out. But what does the Lord say when there are false teachers, there are false shepherds? His, his sheep are starving. Here's what he says. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd. Guess who that is? My servant David, and he shall feed on them. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Paul had this assurance. My God will rescue me. My God has rescued me. And how do I know? Because the ultimate proof is my God has rescued Christ from the grave. Death cannot hold him. They're going to stone me. So what? My God has power over death. Death. Paul could have been and probably was dead at that point, but his ministry was not done. I love the uh, quote from George Whit Whitfield, I am invincible until Christ is finished with me. That is Paul's attitude and that he, he wants Timothy to have that attitude. So now we get into verse 12. This is where people get a little squeamish. Indeed, all who desire to live, live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Doesn't say some. This all means all. Doesn't say just the extra spiritual. And what's implied here, Paul's saying this in the singular. When he's speaking to Timothy, you, you first. Timothy, if you're going to follow my aim of life, expect persecution. If you're going to follow all these other things, you will follow in suffering and persecution. And I think for... Uh, for um, Americans, this is a little tough for us because we've become, we become immune to this. In the West, we haven't seen much persecution. Our brothers in, um, in the East and Global South are being, perse persecution is on the rise. Why does persecution rise? They don't have to per persecute the church if it's not growing, if it's not prospering. When the gospel goes out and the church grows, then the claws come out. Then the, the persecution rises. So if you desire to live godly in Christ, if you are united to Christ in, in faith, you're going to walk and talk in such a way that you're going to draw a contrast between yourself and the world. 
And it is guaranteed that if everyone, if everyone knows that you're a Christian, many people are going to hate you. But it's also guaranteed, if you are in Christ, you share in his suffering, you will share in his glory. Jesus promised it. Paul promised it many times over. So now, let's go back to John 15 again. We talk about persecution. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is no middle ground here. If everyone in the world loves you, it should cause you to think. Christ. We'll get into that in just a moment. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than, their, than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Notice, when you follow Christ, you put on the uniform, the enemy starts shooting. But it's not your uniform. They're not shooting at you. On my account, he says. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Don't forget this next verse. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. They're going to hate you, but you've got something they can't take. And you have someone who reminds you of the gospel who will fill you and seal you and preserve you, my spirit. So when they shoot at you, when the flaming arrows of evil one come, you will be preserved. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't give at least one example of persecution. Um, I love reading about saints who withstand persecution because they, uh, it's humbling for me but also encouraging. So there's a guy who's got a great name in India. Uh, this happened about 10 years ago. His name is Peter Paul. And the uh, writer said he was really disappointed that his sister's wasn't name, na name wasn't Mary. Um, but this uh, pastor, he began a uh, ministry. He, he was talking to people, and that was okay. He was in a predominantly Muslim area. But when he took it one step further and he gave out New Testaments to look to uh, young children in the neighborhood, then it became a problem. Because they don't have books. There are no bookshelves. If you own one book, it is your valued possession. They take it everywhere with them. They took it in the mosque with them. And so leaders of the madrasa gathered a mob of about 150, recruiting angry Muslims from three local mosques. They all went to Peter Paul's house, arriving just as he had finished his morning prayer time. Dragging him outside, members of the mob slapped and kicked Peter Paul, chanting repeatedly, they wanted to kill the infidel. His wife, obviously, she is terrified. But he tells his wife not to worry. Here's what he says. I said to my wife, whatever it is the Lord's will will happen in my life. I did not feel afraid. I knew God could redeem me from them. So the people who beat him in the street were not charged. But he was charged for disturbing communal harmony. He was thrown in prison. And he began to pray, but his prayer was not for rescue or for release. His prayer was, whatever is your will, he told the Lord, do it in my life. He asked the prison leader if he could speak to the other prisoners, and when permission was granted, he stood up and shared his testimony of God's work in his life. He preached about, being giving, about giving glory to God in every circumstance. Wherever we are, he told his fellow inmates, we should give glory to God. When we are in trials and temptations, when we are having all the good things also. In all times, we should give glory to God. After his message, several inmates sought him out and asked him to pray with him. When he was released from prison, he had nowhere to go. 
During the week that he was in jail, the landlord decided his family was too much trouble, and as long as they lived in the house, it was possible that the mob would come and ransack it or even burn it down. So he put them out on the street. There was a significant chance that he would go back to jail. As he and his wife sat with us and sipped tea, listening to their story, the clothes they wore on their back were the sum total of everything they owned in the world. The family's earthly possessions had all been destroyed by the mob. They had no home to go back to. They weren't even sure where they would sleep that night. And yet when Peter Paul asked how we could pray for when we asked Peter Paul how we could pray for them, he didn't even ask for prayer for himself. He asked that we would pray for his parents. Their faith, he said, that had been deeply shaken by their son being arrested and taken to jail. Could we pray that God would comfort and strengthen them? His other request was for his ministry. He asked us to pray that he'd be able to continue as an evangelist. The very work that just cost him a week in jail, his home, and the destruction of all he owned. But he responded, persecution is not an accident, he told us. It is an expectation. Man, when we hear that, that is what someone who knows the full grace of God looks like, who knows the mercy of a Savior who would send his son for us. So let's be clear. We talk about uh, persecution before we get to our our last verse. Um, Persecution, I hear Christians throw this around. Persecution is not the result of living in a fallen world. Getting a flat tire, not getting the uh, promotion, um, you know, consequences of you being an idiot are not persecution. But opposition to Jesus Christ is. Christians who stand firm on the word of God and are not ashamed of the gospel should not expect to be popular. Persecution is when they see Christ and his work in you and hate you for him. Don't you dare be hated on your own account and call it persecution. But Jesus takes it a step further. He said, if they persecute you, you are blessed. These words should sound familiar. The last of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus ends here, and this is the longest stretch of the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, not for stupid sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Same thing Paul told them in Lystra. You will suffer, but you'll enter the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Anything that people utter against me because of me, I should repent of. But anything people utter against me on Christ's account, I should take gladly. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, this is why this is here in the text. We are living in an age where it is less and less popular to be Christian. And confrontation is coming, and opposition is coming to our faces in more and more accounts. We are not the ones who lash out as if we have no hope. We are not to lose hope because the world doesn't like us. This shouldn't surprise us. We are to look to our hope and rejoice that we would be considered worthy to be in the same breath as Christ that we would be treated as they treat him. So maybe one more question. Why? Why persecution? Why would they hate this? Why would they hate Christ? Remember he said this before he's going to the cross. The cross divides the entire world. These two pieces of wood that we identify ourselves. It is folly to those who are perishing. It reminds you if you are dying... That there is a God who is dividing the world between sheep and goats. And the cross reminds me that he hates my sin. That it is worthy of death and that blood must be spilled. And I don't like that. Those who love their sin and love pleasure and themselves more than God, they hate the cross. They don't want to be told they're wrong. They don't want to submit. They don't want someone else to be Lord. That's stupid. That's foolish. You Christians are ridiculous. If there's a God up there, of course he would accept me. Because like Rick said, I'm great in my own eyes, aren't I? 
But when we see the cross, we see freedom. We see his blood spilt for our sin. We see new life, new creation in Christ. We see a promise that death can't hold us because death could not hold him. But when they see the cross, they see a challenge to their own autonomy, their own self-righteousness. And it must be destroyed because if there's a God who judges sinners, I will be judged and I'm not God. So I must rage against it with my whole being. That's why, verse 13, while at the same time, evil people and imposters going on from bad to worse. Evil people are, are obvious. Imposters here, this is a word for magicians, sorcerers. Those peddlers of, of false gospels, those conjuring up. They will go on, they will, they will press forward. This word is a nautical term for a ship that is cutting through the water. Full sail, full speed ahead, advancing on to its, its destination. They will go on from bad to worse. Just as Christians pursue righteousness like we talked about last week. And they press on to the cause of Christ. The wicked will press on. We clearly live in the last days. We see the wicked going on and pressing on. We shouldn't be surprised. Again, we'll always have evil people. We'll always have wolves in sheep's clothing. But what Paul's telling us here, don't expect them to get softer. Don't expect a wolf to get a little nibble of that, that, that lamb chop and then decide to be your friend. Just like when we smell barbecue, like we can't stop. It begins to draw us. Like a Pepe Le Pew and just, you know, go ahead. But, but when they smell blood in the water, it will go from bad to worse. You think wolves are going are gonna to stop when they get a little taste? So we, we see a, a picture. We live in a world where it's not monolithic. There's not some, some direct slope in the righteousness of the Christian life or the downturn of, of, of the world. But it is an upward movement. The Christian in, in Christ will grow and stumble and grow and stumble and grow and stumble. But we move upward in our, in our sanctification, moving in the image of Christ. There is a line graph up and to the right. But for the world, it's the same thing. It won't always be wicked all the time. Not everyone ex experiences persecution at all times. But there is always a trend toward evil. There is always a trend toward pragmatism and liberalism and then progressivism. This is how it always works. Look no further than, than America. Christianity brings prosperity. Prosperity brings comfort. Comfort brings opportunity for sin. Look no further than, than Harvard, Princeton. And go back even further. Look at the Holy Roman Empire. Made all the world Christian. Started out well, didn't end well. Look at Reformation Europe. Look at Germany, Switzerland, Geneva, Scotland, England. Ripe with Christian doctrine and Christian living and now all pagan. This is the trajectory. The Christianity lasts for a time or influences for a time, but the world always creeps in. And if you don't guard and if you don't watch out, that downward trend continues to happen. And it happens in colleges and it happens in seminaries. That's why, at the same time, those who are deceiving and being deceived, they go hand in hand. It's going to continue. Those who deceive others, they deceive because they're deceived themselves. And if you're going full speed in the opposite direction, speeding up is not going to help you change course. But those who are perishing, those who are leading others astray, they want you to hop on the bus. Highway to hell, gas, pedal to the metal. That's the days we, we, we live in. It'll look good for a while on the outside. The church is always being sanctified. The church is always growing closer to Christ. But the Antichrist in the world is always pulling away. And our institutions slip away. So this is a great high note to end on. Right? This is the end of, of, of our text. But I want to give you a preview of next week. Let's keep reading. 
But as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We quote that verse all the time, but seeing it in context, now you see how important it is. Brothers and sisters, it is the same for us. The living, active word of God is how we find assurance and comfort in persecution. How we address it in the church. And as persecution arises, we will need the word of God all the more. We will need to meditate on it and memorize it and hide it in our hearts. And so this brings us back to where we started. John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Saints, this is us. So, three quick points of application here. So, we are to remember Paul's example. Remember the Lord, our rescuer. So, I want to just kind of bring these together. Continue and follow. Don't lose heart. Continue in where you began and stick together. If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you have the privilege and responsibility to set an example for those who are younger. Live a life that is worthy of imitation. Live a life that is worthy of following. You may not be a teacher, but if your life is rooted in solid doctrine, your faith, your aim of life, your love, your patience, your steadfastness, it will instruct for generations. That character, virtue list, you can do that. Those who are younger, find these men and women. You should meet each other. Imitate them. We will need each other more and more as imposters grow from bad to worse. That's why Paul says in uh, Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cause of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to be, to be subject to subject things to himself. Same contrast. Imitate, continue in difficulty. The world serves itself, but our inheritance is in heaven. Point two, expect persecution. We should desire to live in such a way that people take notice and see Christ. And when people take notice and they see the work that Christ has done in your life, they're going to be interested and they will act and turn in faith, but many will hate it and lash out at it. Don't be surprised. Wickedness is promised. But we should actually rejoice in this. Why? James chapter 1. Think about that in the um, James 1 in the context of this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let, your ste and let steadfastness have full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Lord uses persecution to grow us. Um, we should expect it and actually thank God for it because it matures his people. Number three, and most importantly, the Lord is our rescuer. Our God delivered Isaac. Our God delivered Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Daniel. And he delivered Jesus from the grave. Our God is a great rescuer. So when evil comes against us, we are in good company. What's the worst they can do? Fine us, fire us, kill us. They can only do that once. But we will live with our Redeemer forever. I want to close with how Paul closes his letter here. Chapter 4, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, those words are true for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you still our hearts and our, and our minds after looking at a weighty text like that. Be easy to be overwhelmed or distracted or dismissive. Lord, you have not left us without reason for hope. You have not left sinners with an excuse for their sin. You have not left us without marching orders or reason to be encouraged. Help us to continue in the faith. Not be surprised at persecution. To not be surprised at difficulty or trials because you use them. Let us take hope that you are our rescuer. You have rescued us from sin and death in the grave through our Savior. And you will one day rescue us from this fallen world. But you have us here, so you're not done with us. Lord, may we be faithful servants who labor in your house for your cause, for your kingdom, for the, for the sake of the elect, enduring all the world throws at us because we look to our inheritance, our kingdom, and the reign with our Savior forever in glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.